Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we have Paul Schulte on, who is a three-time Paralympian, two-time bronze medalist. He hit the shot heard round the wheelchair basketball world. We'll get to that later, and you'll figure out what it is. Two-time world championship gold medalist, two-time wheelchair analyst for the wheel, for wheelchair basketball uh, on NBC. So he and I have worked together there. He was the point guard and the co-captain of the team. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be on. This is awesome. Just to join you. I mean, it's, you know, I have to look at this. You're a basketball player. I was a ski racer. It seems like all the ski racers think that they're good basketball players and generally really aren't. So, so I, I have to say, okay, thank you. Please. I'm coming into this, just, just being open and honest that, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to let you handle the basketball stuff and certainly let you handle the ball. That's going to be a much better idea. But so when you were, when you were a kid, were you an athlete before you had a car accident? Were you an athlete? I mean, you're 10 years old, right? It's hard to define exactly who you were. But were sports a big part of who you were as a kid? Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, I was actually, I think that was one of my mother's probably larger concerns is that I was overemphasizing sports as a seven, eight, nine-year-old. Um, just to give you a glimpse, um, my first loves were, were baseball and football. And we lived out in the country and my dad actually mowed down the grass behind our house, a field, put up a backstop. Uh, and then mowed base paths. So t-ball practice was at my house, uh, and I would spend every day out there uh, practicing, throwing, hitting, and I was just, there was something about physical activity that just resonated with every part of me, even as a little kid, and I was one of the only kids I knew that had kind of a daily regimen and plan for getting better at the sport that I loved, and so so, so much so that my mom actually approached the high school varsity football coach when I was nine and said, hi, my name's Carol. My son's Paul. He will play football for you. Not because I want him to, but because I'm telling you, this kid's, this kid's really determined with it. And so, um, so yes, yes, I was very preoccupied with my love of sports at a young age. And three brothers and a sister, right? So where do you fall in the whole? In the I am end? middle. I am middle of all of them. We have an oldest angel sister, and then there's four of us ruffians that she put up with. So, so you were battling your way into these games as a as a little kid. Well, the funny part was is that I mean, of all my of all my siblings, uh, the two younger ones were into sports, but I was really I think I'm I'm voted uh, the biggest you know just athlete jock. Uh, my brothers were artists, programmers, uh, one works for Microsoft. Um, and then my sister was the, was the musician. So I was really the, the foremost athlete and just trying to talk everybody into playing with me. Really. You had the field out back. Was your dad an athlete or was he just supporting you and whatever you wanted to do? He, he was an athlete. Um, his, uh, he still contests that, uh, you know, wheelchair basketball is the second greatest sport in the world. Second only to hockey. Uh, so dad played hockey growing up uh, and, and has always been a big sports fan and, um, and 
was my t-ball coach supported me a lot when uh supported all of us in anything that was we want to do he didn't he didn't try to influence us influence toward, towards anything but once he could sell we were really locked in on something he, he did his best to make sure we had all the opportunities we needed and then I, i'd imagine i mean for me one of the thoughts lying in the hospital bed was this is who i am this is the identity i'm an athlete i run i i do i jump i do things what's it going to be like same thought for you and I mean I was 20 you were 10 so I had a little bit more potentially intellectual capability I mean who knows right sure yeah you you you, uh, you had for sure uh, a wider scope of plan for life my only dreams had to do with sports really um and so uh yeah all of a sudden it's if I can't run and I can't throw if I can't run if I can't participate in sports then who am I and that that definitely that definitely rocked me early on what was it like with your friends because I would imagine your friends were the guys you played sports with oh yeah yeah very much um so we we lived in a we lived in a really small town uh it's called Manchester Michigan which is about half an hour southwest of Ann Arbor or an hour west of Detroit. That's the one you're familiar with. And we joked growing up that there were more cows than people there. And all of our teachers knew our parents by their first name. My graduating class was like 75 kids, I think. And so it was a small place. Um, and as far as my friends go, I mean, yeah, there, was, there wasn't that many kids on the playground period, but uh, I, had a, I did have a closest friend, uh, Jimmy, that we first met when we were literally weeks old uh, so we've always known each other our entire lives and and he was really huge for me uh, because he would he would come again and again to the hospital and then once i was out uh, he was just of the mindset like all right well you know, he has his, uh, his nicknames for me and he's like hey call me the same nicknames and say we got to figure this out all right so put the nerf hoop up get you know we were we were pretty good at even before my accident at like improvising little games and competitions to have against each other and that just that just continued and so he was a he was a just he's a, just a lifetime brother that will that was there for me then and always will be and you got out and started playing basketball with the other guys while they were running right so so they're standing up and you're in your chair Right, right. So I mean, all of a sudden, like anybody not blocking started, any shots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm in a chair, and my physical therapist, multiple people are like, "Hey, you love sports so much, so compete in wheelchair sports." And I was like, "Let me think about that." No, um, I had the only other person I knew in a wheelchair was uh, was a close was a friend at school, close friend who had a degenerative disease. And I thought about competing against him in sports. He was already using a power chair by the time we were in fifth grade. And uh, when I thought about competing against him, I'm like, that doesn't work. That doesn't sound like it's gonna be very fun for him or me. And so no thanks, I'll just get back to the playground by any means necessary with my regular friends. And we didn't really get into basketball until seventh grade. And then we started to play basketball during recess. and my friends had been great and just tried to include me and in, you know modifying rules and include me in anything we were doing and as soon as they were running up and down a basketball court i was chasing after them and i wasn't discouraged by that i was just like well i just need to get a little bit faster and i just need to get a little bit faster and um it, it sounds 
you know, so simple, but, you know, some good friends and going out on the court each time and pushing to keep up and looking for the smallest opportunities to participate, uh, set them up for shots or whatever. Um, chasing able bodies, you get faster year over year and as they get faster. And so uh, fast forward, by the time I got my first uh, my first tryout for the USA team, uh, I was fortunate enough to have kind of over years kind of developed another gear, if you will. Like I could go fast. And then once we were already going fast, I had developed another gear of pushing just to try to keep up with, uh, with my fastest friends. And so that ended up being an important part of my game was, was my speed. It's an interesting part. Cause I think about that in skiing too, where it's, we're doing what we're trying to do, but at the same time, there's a model out there where somebody can do it better when they have more stuff to work with, they can do it better. And it's sort of like being that little brother. You're just trying to keep up. You're trying to do your best. And it's amazing what that is as a teacher. And you get there and yeah. go, wow, okay. I'm, I'm actually halfway decent at this. What was the first moment like when you finally decided you were going to get into basketball? Because that happened when you were 14, right? That's right. That's right. I distinctly remember one of my friends, uh, you know, he, you know, I'm in a game with all my able-bodied friends and one of them gets on a good run and he's like, check this out. And he jumps and he grabs the rim, pulls it down a little bit and then lets it go, you know, kind of like a spring loaded one. And it just goes boom, you know, through the gym. And I had my own like light bulb moment of like, this is only going to be so fun for so long. <laughs> You know, I just, I was thinking to myself, like, this is going to have diminishing returns over time. I wouldn't have called it that, but that's what it was. And so in that moment, I was like, I will always play with my friends. But I need something. I need something that isn't, there's going to be a limit to how much I'm able to fulfill through this. And so it was right around that time that uh, I had to go into the hospital for another procedure. And I took my ball with me. It was around Christmas time. And I would take my basketball down to the courtyard of University of Michigan Mott's Hospital, Mott's Children's Hospital. And I would dribble around this big Christmas tree that was out there. And there was a mom that followed me and got in the elevator. And she's like, uh, I, I said, what floor would you like, miss? And she's like, whatever floor you're going to. I'm like, weird. Okay. <laughs> and she said, Hey, uh, my son plays wheelchair basketball. It's an adult practice. So not even sure if you're interested, but I'd love to leave my contact information. Yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of hit me at the right time. And for me, I thought, okay, I had a negative stereotype that adaptive sports was not going to be very athletic, that it wasn't going to be very competitive. And for those two reasons, and maybe a few others that I, it just didn't sound cool. It sounded like a lot of nurses and a lot of bad passes uh, and not very many made baskets. But once she invited me and she said, this is an adult practice, I thought about that. I'm like, wait, all right. Special Olympics is a wonderful, beautiful thing, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted competition, one winner. I wanted the Olympics. And so I thought, all right, a bunch of adults aren't going to show up for a participation medal. They're probably going to be competitive. And I'll probably have no chance because they'll be bigger, stronger. And that really, really appealed to me. The fact that I would have no chance really appealed to me. So I was like, okay, let's go check it out. And still didn't really know what to expect, but I was very fortunate that the first gym I ever went into in Ann Arbor, Michigan had several future hall of famers in it um, of guys, guys by the name of, uh, 
Mo Phillips and Tree Waller and Wyman Davis and Chris Lenzo. And these guys would tell me stories of Dave Kiley and Curtis Bell and Ed Owen and these, these legendary wheelchair basketball players. And, and after the very first night, I was completely hooked. And my shoulders were so sore, I couldn't even lift them the next day. And I was like, I'm going back. And never stopped after that. So was sport a huge part of your recovery? Was that, because I mean, the hard thing is this, you get this traumatic thing that happens to you when you're 10 years old and you don't really know how to process it. You know, if it's, if, if it's, if it's something you can't even comprehend, you know, because this is like you break your arm, your arm, you put it in a cast, your arm heals, and you're back to new. This isn't one that you're back to new. You're back to a, an entirely new life. Was sport kind of the thing that kept you going? Uh, it sounds like your family was really strong. What was sort of the foundational part that you looked on and said, yeah, this is, this is what I can believe in? Yeah. Um, I guess what I have to say is that initially, no. I mean, I loved sport. I loved watching sport, but I really kind of for a little while just thought it's not for, it's not for me anymore. And so my family very quickly and our neighborhood was, uh, they, they, they helped me get involved in activities, namely video games. I mean, this is like in 1989. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, there was no, uh, there was no online gaming where I could connect with friends, but that was something that I could do. And it was the same as before. So I was, I was connecting with something that I liked to do that didn't have to do with my new circumstances. And so that was a little bit helpful, but honestly, I feel like the biggest piece was my family and my faith. Um, you know, I, I, I strongly encourage anyone, anyone that has a, has a severe, uh, severe adversity, like a debilitating injury in the success stories that I've seen, you know, family plays such a critical role and faith does too, regardless of what your faith is. Mm-hmm. There is, I, I've yet to come across a, a religion or a faith that didn't really instill hope. And so my faith was number one influence for good through that time. And then, and then my family's attitude of, Hey, we love you. Um, but you still got to sweep the kitchen and you still got to go outside through the gravel to the grass and help great rake grass. So my family had a really, uh, my family adjusted well and very quickly and said, no, 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 no. We know it's going to be hard, but you're still, you're still doing what you can. And so, yeah, those are the first things that come to mind as far as the, uh, the base that helped me acclimate to what my new life was going to be. And then helped me very quickly realize I was the exact same person after I got hurt as I was before, just a different circumstance. It's interesting because I get asked that you probably do too. You know, how, what do you tell to somebody who's recently gone through one of these things? And my message oftentimes is, is find something to love, find, find a purpose. And that's going to help you get better. That's the thing that you're going to be willing to do a lot of work and you grow as an individual as a result of doing that work is that is that where you looked at it and said it is because you don't really understand why it happened but what was that the thing that you looked at and said okay this is my purpose is even if I don't know even as a even as a young kid I knew that I was really passionate about certain things and certainly sports was one of them 
and that I was just drawn to like, man, like you got to, if you got a Saturday all to yourself and you can choose to do anything, what do you choose to do as an individual? What, what gets you excited, whether it's music or cooking or programming or whatever it is. And um, I feel like through that time, from the time of like 10 years old to 14 years old, I was being given all the right advice. It was just coming across as very rational advice from caring people, but it was like all the advice was in black and white. And until I met someone who was living the kind of life I wanted to live, that was a moment where the black and white advice came into color. And all of a sudden I could see, and it wasn't that first night of wheelchair basketball, interestingly enough. I went to that first night um, and experienced wheelchair basketball and I'm like, I I'm hooked, I'm showing up again because there was, I felt the spark. I felt my heart rate race up to something like it had felt like before. And I'm like, okay, it's not the same, but I had had sufficient time to, everybody has to be ready for the right moment for them. Some people it's really quick and they're like, yep, I wanna get involved in something. Other people like me, I'm like, I'm not ready to engage with something because I remember what it felt like to run. And I remember what it felt like to do that. So it's, that's gonna be different. But kind of here's my point. So I get involved in those practices and they say, you need to go to a collegiate, like a collegiate wheelchair basketball summer camp. And the closest, I think maybe the only one at that time was the University of Illinois. And so I went to a University of Illinois wheelchair basketball camp and that completely blew me away. My, my, uh, my instructor was the, uh, was the late Rob Knight. He was my camp counselor. And Rob, for anybody that doesn't know, I mean, Rob was, uh, he was all of six foot six. He's probably six foot six. And uh, I remember him saying, hi, welcome, welcome to camp. Glad to have you here. Get your trays, get yourself fed, get back here because we got practice in about you know, 25 minutes. And we're all like, you know, I mean, he had, uh, he had a car, he had a girlfriend, he had a major, and he was a collegiate athlete, single amp UT, playing wheelchair basketball, six foot six. And anything he said was law. It was like, okay. All the same advice that my parents have given me that's like good advice, all of a sudden it's coming from somebody that I consider to be cool. And that changed everything. <laughs> all of a sudden, all the black and white advice before is now all in color. And as when I saw somebody living the kind of life I wanted to live, now there was kind of no holding me back. Now I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to reach something like that in my life. How long were you at that camp? Was that a week-long camp? It was. It was. That was that was important for me because it, the understanding was, hey, look, I mean, after you become paralyzed, you got to learn how to take care of yourself. Yeah. Uh, at the house, in the bathroom, like all of that. And so my dad was like, you can go, but look, buddy, you're going to have to become even a little bit more independent if you're going to go live on a college campus for a week. And so what a tremendous goal. All of a sudden I was like, well, I'll be darned if I'm going to let that dumb thing that, 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 that thing that I need to learn, that independence, I'm not going to let that get in the way of me going to stay on a college campus for a week. And so it was, it was good motivation. And get to play ball with these other guys with the, because there was kids your own age, I would imagine, right? 14, 15 years old kind of thing or. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I only played against adults. So the chance to like get out with other kids my age, I'm like, wow, what's this going to be like? And, and of course, I mean, Rob Knight was great. And then uh, the other true inspirational figures I met at that camp just by getting involved in a single adaptive sport event was just the mentors that I ran into. So I met Brad Hedrick um, 
uh, I met his wife, Sharon, and I listened to, we, we, I don't know how many, how many kids we had. We must've had between, I don't know, 15 and 30, 15 and 30 campers. And I remember being in um, Drez, uh, the building uh, where adaptive sports is housed and Jean Driscoll spoke to us. Jean Driscoll came in and she spoke to us for 10 minutes and just lit up my world. I felt like I could go take down anything. And so I guess to me, as I look back at that time, I was like, I want to learn skills. I want to learn how to play basketball. But what I didn't even realize I was gleaning was connecting with positive, admirable mentors. And their influence on me was, it's hard to, hard to put into words how, how inspired I was coming off of that. But they encouraged us for goal setting. They encouraged us for education. And if I was motivated before, now, now you just strapped a rocket pack to me. Now I was, my grades got better. Everything got better because now I had purpose. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, Illinois is, is really very much about the student athlete. And, and about the person. And so you're seeing that, I mean, Gene Driscoll, as you were saying, eight-time Boston Marathon winner, right? So this is, yep. you're like, huh, she seems like she's pretty good at what she does. And she's put in a whole lot of work to win one of the most iconic races over and over and over again. But it really is about that person. And it's not just about the sport. It's what are you going to do next? And what are you going to do in school? And, and I mean, it sounds like it was a great situation for you how did that then lead to what you were how did you play basketball in high school because you said you were in a in a small town yes yeah you didn't have a full basketball wheelchair basketball team no no so that uh that that team that i got involved with uh, at the time was called the ann arbor thunderbirds and so um had this adult team that i was able to practice with once a week and and then I would go back to my chasing my able-bodied friends on the court, like I told you about before. And so they said the closest junior team or high school age team is out of Grand Rapids, coached by Lee Montgomery, uh, the future Hall of Famer. And so um, basically I would I would practice with my adults, um, my, my newly formed adult friends, and then I would go play uh, on the Grand Rapids Mary Freebed Junior Pacers wheelchair basketball team. And so for three years of high school, from sophomore, junior, and senior year, uh, I played my, my high school age ball with, against, with and against players you know, my own age in the National Wheelchair Basketball Association Junior Division. And then my last two years, I played on adult teams as well to try to help me get ready for uh, college ball and potential USA trials. And, and with the high school stuff, how does that work? Because, I mean, you can be separated by long, long distances, right? Are you playing tournaments? Is it kind of like a final four at the end where? Uh, it, it, it is. It is. So typically your season is you, you go to a tournament. I mean, it's not like uh, you play one game a weekend. Not, not unless, uh, well, I mean, it's different used to be, but at that time, uh, it was, hey, you may have four or five opportunities to travel to a tournament where 10 teams will be there. You might get to play, you know, four other teams or five other teams, get in five games, and that's it for the weekend. So you play like five games in a weekend, then you go home. And you play anywhere between three and five of those tournaments to kind of work your way through your season. And then you show up to the National Wheelchair Basketball Tournament, and it has a junior division that's like bracketed 
uh, with 16 teams. And then it's kind of like double elimination. You work your way all the way to the final four and to the championship game. Um, and we were, we were fortunate my sophomore year, uh, my sophomore, junior and senior year, uh, we had a good team and we made it to the final in each of those years. And we were fortunate enough to win two of them. So it was, uh, it was a fun ride in juniors for sure. You were MVP, uh, senior year, right? I was, I was most valuable player in my senior year. MVP of the tournament. When did you know, was it starting in the sophomore year? Cause I mean, that's obviously a big moment. But when did you know that you had potential to go on beyond, beyond, you know, high school basketball, beyond potentially college basketball? As soon as Gene Driscoll told me I could. <laughs> uh, Gene Driscoll told me I could. And then I also, that, that, I remember her specifically was saying, write your goal down and tell it, tell it to me. And so I did. Um, and, but there were, but before then. What was the goal that you wrote down and told to her? I told her I would become a gold medalist and also a national champion. And she was like, all right, now I want you to think about the plan that leads to that. Not about wishing here. We're about goal setting and, and, you know, there's going to be a path that leads to that. So, but in addition to that, you know, my mentors that I mentioned earlier that really taught me how to dribble, taught me how to play the game. They were like, what do you want to do? And my dream was to be recruited by a college program. So I'm like, I want, to be, I, want to be, I want to play in college. And they're like, well, keep working as hard as you do. Don't take the summer off, do stuff, you know, work, work hard, start lifting weights. And uh, they also were encouraging me week in, week out, like, hey, you just keep showing up. You keep working as hard as you possibly can and good things are going to happen. But University of Illinois was the opening for you. But you ended up one. going to the University of Illinois. That's right. That's right. So I was I was all in on, uh, on U of I. And, and now... Uh, there, there were there were a number of uh, collegiate wheelchair basketball programs then, and now there's even more, um, which is which is super exciting. But U of I was, I mean that was that was within driving distance. I went and attended, and I was like, that's it. And I also really gained a lot of respect for Brad Hedrick, and so I was like, I am gonna go play at U of I. Well, my senior year of high school, right at the end of my senior year of high school, Brad retired, and so that was a major blow. I was like, oh such a legend i really wanted to play for him and at the same time uh, i was offered a, a a a very a very good scholarship to go play for the university of texas at arlington and i developed a close friend that was also going to the university of texas at arlington and that was kind of the trifecta that i was like well brad's not going to be there and i got a scholarship and i know somebody else going there so maybe i'll go visit and i visited and and, and also fell in love with UT Arlington and, and decided to go there. So you went there and you ended up, you ended up doing really well there. And, but you also started playing with the national team at the same time, didn't you? I did. I did. So after four years of having my shot blocked and the ball taken from me every week uh, with the, uh, with the adult players uh, nearby, they had kind of prepped me. And, and then don't forget, like chasing after my able-bodied friends. So it was really that combination of like week in, week out, serious, serious challenges that I was reveling in. I was trying to rise to. Um, uh, I had played my senior year for juniors and, and got the MVP. And then I also played for the adult uh, Grand Rapids Pacers alongside of Lee Montgomery. And in that same that, tournament. Yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden I'm playing with the adults my senior year 
And we went to a few tournaments and I was able to play against uh, Dave Kiley, who at the time was one of the big, big uh, stars and names that has been for a long time. Uh, just inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Hall of Fame. Yes, just he was. Weeks. Yes, he was rubbing elbows with Michael Phelps and all kinds of people. Um, so that was my first uh, chance to see some of those players. And while I didn't have all the skills and tools I needed, I was fast. And so they were like, well, go play defense on Dave Kylie and just make him work as hard as you can. And I'm like, we'll do it. So just, they kind of sicked me on him. And I, I'm that's not like what's that against Dave, Dave? That sounds like, like it might not be a great idea. So you were effectively yeah. enlisted as a pest for yeah. Dave. Absolutely. You go, you go pester him. And I, and I can imagine that Dave might not have been super happy about that. Well, I think when I first went on the court, I was like, Mr. Kiley, I've been assigned to guard you. <laughs> and he's like, well, good luck, kid, and stay away from the elbows. <laughs> and so I didn't come anywhere near guarding him well, but I certainly was, I was fast enough that I was going to make him work. And I remember getting subbed out of the game and uh, him looking over on the bench, and he's like, I'm glad you're there <laughs> on the bench. Uh, and so anyway, those are some of the things that, that led to somebody taking a chance on me and saying, well, hey, you know, maybe he'd have some experience down the road with the U.S. teams, U.S. teams. So invite him to a tryout camp so that he experiences what that's like. So that he gets a feel for the speed and level of basketball above what he's experienced so far. And so um, I was invited and I turned it down. Uh, I was it was going to be my first semester at a college program my first semester at UT Arlington and it sounds you know kind of silly maybe but I was terrified of missing class and so and so I turned down the first invite I was like look I really want to don't get me wrong I really want to but I got to make sure I start off my first semester good and um, and then I was super fortunate uh, after they made the first cut um, they said we we really like you to come around for that second round of tryouts even just to experience it and by that time, I had enough experience of getting to know college professors, and I accepted the invite. And so I went to the second round of the tryouts. And um, yeah, it was really those things that led up to, the, to first being involved. And all of a sudden, I was lined up across from and beside my heroes, these, these wheelchair basketball players that were all Hall of Famers, all just amazingly gifted. And once again, I was in an environment where I had no chance. And that really appealed to me. <laughs> There's a theme here. Some of that was the school theme, though, too, because what were you studying in school? Did you know that you were going to be an engineer when you first started? I uh, I knew that I wanted my dad had an engineering degree and I, I knew I wanted to do something technically related. And so I started off with uh, uh, electrical engineering. I thought that was going to be the, the right fit for me. And I got into electrical engineering and I was like, this isn't anything like I thought it was going to be. Uh, so then I did business for a little while. And I always felt like for me that I had that I had, uh, that I had, I don't know, not backed away from a challenge, but but backed away from what I really wanted. And so a close friend convinced me uh, years later to change my major again and go after mechanical engineering. And uh, and when I got into that, I was like, this is what I was looking for, and that's what I got my degree in. Now, is that is that your mind frame? You know, like your mindset, like the the left brain kind of math and analysis and that kind of thing. But then your point guard. Which I mean, there's an there's an artistry to being a point guard, right? It's this spatial and creating this space and and moving through space and imagining space. 
So where, where do you fit? Where does your mind interpret it, especially when you look at the wheelchair kind of thing, too? Well, I would say probably in both. Um, I never particularly felt uh, I never felt gifted in either one. I guess I'll say that. I'll say that, you know, if there's definitely a relatable piece of my story, it's that determination trumps other things over time. It's, it's not who wants it more on one day, it's who wants it more consistently year after year after year. So I always kind of felt like I was a football player playing basketball uh, and then I was felt more like a construction worker trying to do something finesse. And I definitely wasn't the smartest in my, in my college classes, but I learned that I learned that I couldn't miss class. I knew that I liked this stuff, but that, that there were brilliant people around me and that I was going to have to try really, really hard, but that if I was persistent enough, they couldn't hold me off forever and that I could, that I could get this done. And so, uh, I never felt particularly gifted in either of those areas, but persistence, persistence plays a big role for any of us in the things that we're passionate about or the dreams that we have. It's usually the determining factor, right? The persistence. Yeah. How were you able to balance sport and school? Was that a real challenge going through college? Um, you know, I, I played at UT Arlington for, um, for the late Jim Hayes, who started the UT Arlington program. And as excited as I was to talk about sports when I first showed up to campus, all he wanted to talk about was my future family, my job, how I was going to support myself. And so, uh, and, and now looking back, I'm like, that took a lot because Coach Hayes was really excited about the season. He was really excited to compete and he was a major, major competitor in his own sports and then as a coach. Um, and so that kind of started me off on the right foot with that emphasis. Um, I, I definitely had uh, bumps in the road where it's like, oh, I need to take an incomplete in that class because uh, I, I, I didn't get as far as I needed to. Uh, I, I either missed some classes because of uh, USA related stuff or, or I hadn't learned the right study habits yet to perform well and, and take it seriously. Um, so uh, my, my beloved brother reminds me that when I talk about my, my college days that he said, well, you know what, buddy, don't worry. Lots of people go to college for eight years they just call them doctors. And I'm like, oh, very good. <laughs> very nice, very nice. So after changing my majors twice and then taking some incompletes here or there and then, and then learning how to be a good student and how to be disciplined and how to lock in and get things done and say no to other things so that you can achieve your goals or, or key things that I need to learn and then persistence over time um, willed out and I was able to, I was able to get Priorities that. and persistence, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember watching you and, and they've gone through like with the chairs, with the basketball chairs, they went from, you know, back in the day, it was one of the first sports you could play, right? So you're getting out there in your hospital chair and your 50 pound E&J hospital chair, and then right. things progressed and progressed. And then we see them go to like the six wheels. But I remember you at one point not using the six wheels you were still using like what almost similar to what i'm in today like my regular everyday chair yes why why did you do that i mean because thinking and it's funny like i i just had a conversation with bill walton i was telling you about that who's a you know a legend within the game and what he loved about the game more than anything 
was the thinking part of the game. The basketball was a game for thinking, for solving those problems. So why did you go with four wheels instead of, instead of having like the anti-tip wheels? Well, I remember in 1998, that was my, kind of my first memory of Dave Kiley having uh, have an anti-tipper in the back. And, and at first, uh, I think uh, my first experience with like anti-tippers, I'd show up to practice and I had anti-tippers on my everyday chair, but they were just everyday anti-tippers. Like they were just literally for safety, right? And I remember Mo Phillips taking them off my chair, handing them to my dad and say, I never want to see these on there again. And because I needed a mentality of like, well, learn how to balance my chair. Yes, I'm going to flip over from time to time and be safe with that. But I needed to learn how to really balance and maneuver my chair. And so I think probably <laughs> maybe I had a negative stereotype, like how do you have a tipper? Uh, and then I was super, super fortunate to get sponsored uh, for my basketball wheelchair uh, from Top End when I was 16. And so I was so grateful for that, that I was determined to play and anything they gave me. Uh, and they gave me a great chair that was super fast. And that was really, it was 98, I was 96. And then 98, Dave started showing up with an anti-tipper. And of course, the benefit is you put that back there, you can slide the wheels further forward. All of a sudden you're spinning faster than you had before more easily. Uh, you got better control of the chair and you're and you're more stable for reaching back for the ball and doing other things. Um, but I had another move without an anti-tip. Uh, I learned that I could pop a wheelie. You know, if I'm flying down the court, all I had to do is kind of cup the ball in one hand and then lean back and get into this wheelie. And because I had so much camber, it would kind of like bring me to a stop. Like it would slow me down. And so I had a couple of moves that I had built off of not having an anti-tip um, that uh, that I thought were pretty cool and, <laughs> and pretty effective. So all those things kind of kind of led to me being uh, waiting a couple of years before I, before I had an anti-tip, and then and then once I did, I, I felt the benefits of that too. You went to the anti-tip eventually, and and for those who don't know about wheelchair basketball, it's two pushes and then a dribble. So you weren't if you were cupping the basketball, you weren't you weren't traveling as you were cupping the basketball. Yeah, yeah, great point. Interesting. So first Paralympics, 2000, oh. Sydney, Sydney, making, making the team. Was it hard to make the team? What was it like to make that team? It was, uh, it was a really neat experience to make the team. Uh, coach Dan Burns was the U S coach at the time and he took a chance on me. And I, I still maintain to this day, the only reason I made that team is because uh, the the uh, the decorated enormous Reggie Colton uh, is a, is the name of a ball player who was I don't know how tall Reggie would have been it would have been like six nine six ten his his wingspan was massive and Reggie didn't try out he and I were the same classification had he tried out there was no way I was making that team but he didn't he had a lot of family stuff going on and so uh, and and career stuff and so he didn't and they picked me last on the team saying well hey this kid's fast. Let's use them in a pressing lineup. Let's use them to be a pest. And um, and when they read my name off that I had made the team, I just I had to I had to compose myself in that moment, like wanting to just yell in excitement, but also recognizing that somebody else didn't make it. And so I just I just tried to compose myself as much as possible and wait to celebrate until later. But I was beside myself, knowing, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get to I'm gonna go get to compete. Um, in this in this movement called the Paralympics, and Sydney was incredible. 
incredible. I, I, I was, I still get chills. I still get chills because you roll down the streets of the village and you see athlete after athlete that you can't talk to because you don't speak the same language, but they're moving along with their wheelchair or their crutches or their adaptive whatever on how they live their life. And you roll around looking at each other and nodding like with some respect, just going, we do speak the same language. We do speak the same language because we have, we've lived a life that's less, that's more rare than common. And instead of backing down, we chose to stick our necks out and really try for something and really try hard at something at the chance to represent our country. And it worked and we're here. And what would huge. have been the message had you been able to go back and talk to your 10 year old self? The one who thought, oh, I don't wanna do that. If I could go back and whisper one thing to myself, I would say every dream you ever had can still come true. Keep an open mind. Well, it sounds like your 10-year-old self did pretty well too, found found that route and continued to believe in it. But you were there as the pest. You were there as the one who is just, you're, you were the instigator. You were the one who just wanted to make somebody else's life miserable on the other on the other team. That was your job. Go out there, work really hard, make them work really hard, get the best player on the team out of his game. But you were there at the end of the biggest game. Was. You were on the court. What was what was that like? How were you there at the end of the game? Were you there in a defensive capacity? Well, by that time, um, so I, I met the team. I, when I first made the team, I was uh, I, that was kind of the deal that I was going to be the pest. And then there were so many other big names on the team, like Trooper Johnson and these other incredible you know players and scorers. Um, I just I worked super hard on on my game, so I would be ready for little opportunities. And for me. Um, I would make it onto the court, uh, as Dan Burns said, he said, Paul, you're not our most experienced. You're not our best shooter. You're not our best playmaker. And so far that's working for you because nobody knows who you are. They're leaving you open and you're hitting layups. You're hitting shots that are open and that's making a great difference. Don't, don't worry about doing anything spectacular. Just, just do execute these fundamentals. And it's really, it's really paying off. And so by the time we hit the medal rounds in 2000, um, I was able to play lots of minutes and, and help being one of the primary ball handlers and, and starting to be one of the look to scorers. And so we, uh, we had lost a heartbreaking semifinal um, to the Netherlands that year. And so we were into the bronze medal game against GB against Great Britain. And I was on the floor towards the end of regulation and, uh, and something, something really cool happened. Preparation met opportunity, I guess. Um, there was uh, GB had the ball and had an opportunity to hit a close shot. And uh, rather tragically for the player that, uh, that, that attacked and missed it, he, he, was, he was closely contested and, and he missed the shot. And all of a sudden, the game was tied at that point. And the ball came off. One of my teammates, Will Waller, got it and uh, got it reined in. And, and inside, I'm like, oh, my gosh we're still tied. Like maybe we could go to overtime and we'll, we'll skips the ball out to Eric Barber who throws it over to me. And I cross half court and I'm like, just so relieved. I'm like, cool. We're going overtime. I'm just going to chuck this up there. I saw a GB player coming over 
And I was like, he's getting too close. I wonder if I'll draw a foul. And I was, and I just, I just, I knew time was running out. So I, I lifted my head and just tried my, tried to shoot it as far and as straight with as much follow through as I could. And it went straight down. And in an instant, I actually have seen a ball go straight down like that after it gets to the rim. And sometimes it just means they hit the front of the rim <laughs> and it, it's front of the rim and goes straight down and that's it. But it went straight down and, uh, and the net didn't move very much and the crowd went bananas. And I was like, oh my gosh, it went in. And I kind of turned around. I was like, what do you do? I guess you put your arms up. And my team like kind of dogpiled me and we won a Paralympic bronze medal at the buzzer. And it was, uh, and I was one of the most surprised people there, but you know, you, you train super hard so that in the moment you can not think and just attack. And, and sometimes your body can do, can do really incredible things. So we had great rivals with great rivals, rivalries with GB over the years where we broke their heart, they broke ours. Um, but that was certainly, that was certainly a, certainly a beautiful capping moment to, uh, to, to my first Paralympic Games experience, for sure. Was that, so you look at the time going from sort of when you were 10 years old to this time of being, of 2000 being in the, in the games, was that when, was there any kind of a thought of like, okay, I've arrived, I'm complete, there was, uh, you know, I've, I've recovered, did that have, did anything come from the accident to that moment, or was it like, I'm just moving forward with my sport? I think moving forward with my sport, I, I do feel like um, when I was named to my first team, knowing that I was at least going to be a practice dummy, um, not unlike the movie Rudy of just being on the team. Like I loved the movie Rudy, like memorized it. Uh, and so for me, making the team for the very first time and being handed something that said USA on it was that was extremely fulfilling for me, even had it only been for that, just knowing how hard I worked to get to that point. That was pretty huge. I, I felt like I am not that I'm whole or that I've arrived, but I'm improving. I'm, I'm overcoming. And that slight feeling of I'm overcoming, it, it is a thrilling feeling. It's an enabling feeling and you want to feel it more and more in different areas of your life. So, so yeah, that's, that's a bit about what it felt. That's uh, it's the intoxicating feeling, isn't it? That I'm getting better. I'm improving. I'm moving forward. I'm, I'm solving problems because obviously being an engineer, you're, you're a problem solver too, but you're solving problems. Your college coach was talking about what are you going to do after college? What are you going to do? So you, you talked about your high school experience in basketball. Did you still go to high school in that small town? Because you ended up marrying your high school sweetheart, right? So how did this work? What kind of what kind of game did you have with the with the girls in you know back in high school? Zero game. That's what kind of game. <laughs> uh, well, let's see here. So I um, definitely I always looked at the relationship that my parents have, my mom and my dad, and I'm like, I always wanted something like they had because they were just in love. Even when they had five rugrats running around, it was like it was just clear how dedicated mom and dad were to each other. And I'm like, man, I always want to, I, I want a relationship like that. Um, and so the ironic part with my wife is that, uh, you know, we're in this tiny town 
Uh, we grew up literally five miles apart, but didn't speak to each other. She was one grade lower than me. Like I was one year older and uh, we didn't speak to each other until the last three months of my senior year of high school. So we were high school sweethearts, but it wasn't until uh, kind of my brother started dating her best friend. And I'm like, where's my brother? It's time to go. And I go down to his locker uh, to find my brother and turn up his girlfriend and, and then Megan are there and didn't take long before I didn't mind going down to find my brother and hoping that Megan was around. And uh, we dated through the summer. Um, uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth pointing out too. I don't want to skip over this point that I was really terrified um, of my, the fact that, that I, the fact that I had to self-cat and the fact that sometimes as having paralysis, my body did what it wanted to do and I hadn't figured it all out yet. And so that was terrifying. And just to use a little example, I mean, when it came to like self-care and like self-cathing, um, I was determined that whoever my wife was, she wasn't going to learn about this until we were 80, which is like, that's the total plan of a 16 year old, right? Like it's just no other option. Yeah. 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 I'll only go to the bathroom when she's asleep. Uh, and so that's my, that was my irrational plan. And, and I guess I just point out that all of my fears were, were, were valid emotions that I was feeling. But at the same time, I look back now and if I could go whisper to my 16 year old self, I'd say every mountain that you perceive is going to be the biggest challenge in your relationship. Those are going to be molehills. Those won't even matter compared to the real things that, that, a, that a real relationship deals with and overcomes over time. Um, so I was, I was scared to death. Uh, and then when she, when I, when I finally had, you know, something happened on a particular day and I was like, well, I have no choice. The only explanation of this is to explain to her that this is how I have to take care of myself. And I was so ashamed of it. Um, but her response was like, this is what you're worried about. If you don't do these things, you like get really sick and potentially die, right? Like this is how you stay alive. Why is that anything to be ashamed of? And I was like, all right, I knew I liked you for some reason. Right? <laughs> so anyway, the relationship part of it, I, I didn't have much game, but I was, I was goofy and I was an athlete and, uh, and, I knew, and I knew she was someone special. And so it was, it was great, to, great to start off our relationship then. And we really grew up together. We were married when we were 21 and 20 and, and she was along with me. She was along with me for everything I did. Where did she go to college? Did she go to college with you too? First she went to University of Michigan, oh, Michigan State, excuse me. First she went to Michigan State University and then after we were engaged, uh, she was down at UT Arlington with me and graduated from there as well. Okay, cool. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's just, and so obviously your coach planted that seed too, right? So. Yep, yep, for sure. And now you have a son who's, who's an athlete too, right? BMX guy? Yes. Yes. Our son, Brady, who we had in 2010, uh, we had to, we had to, we, we had to do, we needed help having Brady. So right. We sure. To, uh, yep. We went to the Miami project and uh, they helped us have Brady and, and he's 12 years old and he's, and he's fantastic. We are just, we love, we love every minute of life with our son and, uh, BMX racing was kind of his, his first love. And, uh, didn't want to just like just like my dad never pushed us towards anything. Just waited to see what we gravitated toward, and then tried to support us 
as best we could. We're doing the same thing with him at BMX. But in the last year, he's really become interested in basketball. So I'm like, okay, well, you, you want to learn some more? You want to go shoot? Yes. Okay. So uh, I've been doing a lot more basketball with him uh, in the past year than I have in the past. So he's, uh, he, he's terrific. He, he plays, plays three sports, BMX, wheelchair basketball, and able-body basketball. I'd imagine he's probably a pretty good wheelchair basketball player too. He is coming along, coming along real quick. He can handle a chair for sure. That's awesome. Afterwards, you and I have worked together at NBC for the Paralympics. So you did uh, what Rio and then Tokyo on the, on the analyst side for basketball. What was that like? Like that opportunity when they called you up and said, hey, we, we'd be interested in you coming in and talking about basketball. You obviously have a lot of knowledge about the sport and a passion for the sport. For sure. But there's a little bit of difference being on television. What did you what did you think when they called you up? Oh, boy. I tell you, you know, it was um, it was a really I'll just I'll keep it short by saying it was a really hard decision for me to retire from the national team. So I retired from the men's wheelchair basketball team. Um, in January of 2016 and at that point I had been involved with the national team for 18 years so this had been a huge part of my life half of your life really I mean half of your life almost on the national team really right yep Um, and so it was a huge decision not to and then man what an opportunity what a blessing what an opportunity that two weeks after I retire I get an email from NBC saying would you be interested in auditioning and I thought, I mean, having when you experience wheelchair sports for a couple decades, you kind of get a feel that this is still a young movement. This is still these are still young sports in the grand scheme of things. And so my first reaction to knowing that NBC was going to do something like this was, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, was reverence. I was like, this is an important, important opportunity. Like somebody's going to have a chance to tell tens of thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousand people, hundreds of thousands of people about adaptive sports. We've had millions of viewers now, right? I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, I I only only dreamed that it could be that big. And so I'm like, this is really important. Uh, And then I also thought, well, I guess I better start getting ready. So I wanted to do it. Uh, Figured that I was going to be more nervous than I'd ever been, which was was correct. Uh, Which is correct. The first time they say we're going live in three, two, one, you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, but I started, I had some really good advice uh, from a good friend who uh, gave me gave me great tips and advice on preparing for uh, preparing for auditioning and working for NBC. And, and certainly they're terrific and their, their understanding of what it feels like to be a Paralympic athlete and how you want your sport portrayed. And yes, you're inspiring, but Please don't focus only on the inspirational part. Like people be inspired just because they're inspired. Let's focus on the sport. Let's focus on, you know, what's happening. Let's focus on the Paralympics. And uh, it was incredible. I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do it for 2016. And then again, for Tokyo, it was a neat way to stay involved in a sport that had been so much part of my life and helping, if I could, transfer some of my excitement and appreciation to, to the viewers. It's interesting that you talk about that, the idea of it being such a young movement still. I mean, this is really ultimately from 1948. So it's been it's been a long time, but we haven't really been in the public eye for that long and starting to get this kind of viewership. What's your objective 
when you're there because you're talking about you know you've got the sport on one side you've got the inspirational part on the other side but also the the desire to attract fans like how do you attract those fans how do you make them go i'm not going to miss this that's a that's a good question i guess i guess to attract the fans i i'm a fan i think that comes across probably clear in this interview um i'm a fan and so it's easy for me to get excited about success stories and athletes that are just wonderful ambassadors of the United States of America, as well as their sports. Um, but I say, I would say that one of my, one of the objectives for me that emerged is, you know, when I got to, in preparation for Tokyo, I got to the, go to the Olympic training center and interview every men's and women's player. Oh, wow. And when I interviewed the women's team, one of the athletes said, I watched in Rio. I watched Rio in cancer treatments from my hospital bed as a 14 year old. And now I'm 19. And now I've been picked on the team last, maybe as the past to run around and play defense. But I watched them. I listened to their stories. And I said, all of a sudden, they didn't put these words, but me paraphrasing, I would say that they were communicating to me all the black and white good advice they had been given turned to color and nothing could hold them back from, I know what I want to do. I know where I want to go. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to get there. And so, so really doing my best to explain the game, you know, explain the beauty of the game, explain the beauty of the countries that are competing, the athletes that are competing, the legacy of it. And, and what the players can do, that's become one of my objectives is to communicate that to the next generation so that they fall in love with it as much as I do. Yeah, you're giving them that gift of hope that you were talking about. Yeah. That, yep. Yeah, that love, that passion. And like, yes, this is what I'm going to do because it's good for me and because it matters too. And that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so what's... What are you doing now? We've got a couple of minutes, but you're also you're working with with top end as well as a, as a as an engineer. So what is what does that mean? What do you what, what does that mean that you're an engineer at a wheelchair company? Oh, another another irony, really. Uh, I was in college and people said you should work on wheelchairs, and in the same way that people said you should play adaptive sports, I was like, no, I'm not interested in wheelchairs. But sports wheelchairs are a different thing. And adaptive sports is definitely a different thing. And so when Top End originally called me and said, hey, would you be interested in an engineering position here? I said, absolutely. Um, I love working with, I love working with builders, love building, working with people that are creative and, and can build things that didn't exist before, uh, especially when it goes into a product that's so much part of my DNA, you know, from hand cycling uh, to racing wheelchairs to basketball chairs I love every bit of it and so I, I consider myself very fortunate each day to show up to the factory and to and to build chairs and bikes for young and old athletes that have goals um, and so it's a beautiful thing to be part of so it really adaptive sports kind of it has kind of permeated my life hasn't it so uh, it's great so really the things that make me tick are are, are my faith my family, uh, my work, and, and, and my own involvement in sports. So I, I've hand cycled more uh, than I ever have. 
uh, I still play ball. I still play ball for fun and, and we're all competitors, right? So you get me out there. I'm like, I'm just going to do it for fun. And I'm like, I think I'm going to block somebody's shot and try to take the ball and, and get competitive. Um, but, uh, but it's been beautiful to get involved with top end because it's introduced me even further to another world of adaptive sport athletes, endurance athletes, uh, other athletes that I've met that I'm like, Oh my gosh, as a 43 year old, I'm a baby in these sports. You can do wheelchair racing. You can do hand cycling. You can play these adaptive sports as long as you want. I mean, I've met, I've met 60, 70 year olds that I, that I look at and I'm like, these guys are cut. What's my problem. I need to <laughs> start working out again. And so, uh, so really adaptive sports continues to inspire me in all that I do. And I'm grateful to be able to work in the field and, uh, and continue to try to advance designs for the next generation. That's the cool part. And, you know, I mean, you're talking about who you are and what you're all about. And I'd say that that competitive nature is most definitely who you are. And when that little bit can mean something, that's, that's the thing that sounds like it really drives you that that little bit like let's find that and let's get forward so been so cool to be able to talk to you paul really appreciate you joining us i really appreciate it thank you for all you guys are doing pleasure we're going to keep telling the story man this is this is the idea I and mean, this is what we have to do and this is what we get a chance to do so uh thank you to you paul and then thank you to all our viewers we really appreciate you tuning in we hope you enjoyed it please tell your friends please tell your friends this was awesome you got to check it out and it will be a traditional podcast. So when it comes out in a podcast, please, please like us, please follow us, and we'll continue to bring you great guests. So thank you all, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah.